From politics in the pub Newcastle, in collaboration with the School of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Newcastle, this is Politics in a Podcast. After a turbulent four years in office, Donald Trump has lost the presidency to Joe Biden in what some are calling the most significant US election in decades. To help unpack the election and its possible consequences, we're joined by Dr. Todd Moore. Todd, I want to ask you first, was there any particular moments during the election that stood out for you? Uh, Yeah, thanks, Peter. Um, Yes, there there were quite a few moments, but the interesting thing about those moments, um, from my point of view, was they were all pre-COVID. And what I mean by that is that there was a lot happening during the Democrat primaries. Um, And for those of your listeners who are not aware of... um, the way things work in the United States is that they have to have a very long series of uh, sort of runoffs to get the candidates from major parties when they don't already have a, an incumbent who's going for a second term in the White House. What that meant was that the Democrats had a wide open field and they had at one stage well over 20 uh, leading candidates uh, for the nomination. And so they were all going against each other. And for that to happen, they had a, a whole series of what they call primaries, which are like polls that you have in individual states. And in America, everything happens at the state level. So you've got 50 states and a few territories as well, and they all have to have primaries. So they all happen well in advance of the actual election campaign itself. So that was all starting to really get interesting before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. And there was a lot of moments during that process that were absolutely fascinating. Um, You had um, a really um, uh, strong feeling of change happening. You had two um, uh, candidates, uh, Elizabeth Warren and and Bernie Sanders, who were both coming up with policies that were uh, not establishment policies. And for a long time, uh, people were disappointed with Barack Obama and uh, Obama and before him Bill Clinton. These had been Democrats who followed what we would call economic rationalism in Australia, so a bit like the right wing of the Labor Party. They were very, uh, very economically conservative um, and, and uh, very much into small government, privatisation, tax cuts and, and uh, very much against uh, the sort of working class voter. So this view uh, that you had two sort of more interesting, more sort of uh, progressive candidates opened things up a lot. But you also had some new faces, uh, people like Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg and a few other people like that who who were um, people we hadn't really seen before. Um, Pete Buttigieg was an openly gay candidate, so that was interesting. Um, And... It made the, the, the actual primaries much more interesting than what came afterwards. And there were some great moments. There was one particularly fine moment where uh, a candidate from Hawaii, Tulsi Gabbard, who was running on an anti-war ticket, a very very much an anti-defence spending ticket, because she herself is um, uh, connected with the military and has done a number of terms um, in, uh, in the Middle East uh, as, as a reservist. So, yeah, Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii... Um, really attacking some of these establishment Democrats. Uh, so she was really going in on um, some of the more established uh, uh, Democrats and, and really uh, tearing them apart on their, on their 
support for wars in, in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. And, and uh, there, there was uh, some, some really interesting fireworks um, uh, when, when, when uh, Tulsi Gabbard was on the stage very briefly. And then, they, then they, they got her off the stage for some of the subsequent debates in the primaries because of that uh, embarrassing, what they felt was an embarrassing attack on their, on their war policy. Um, in, in particular, um, Kamala Harris, she tore strips off Kamala Harris on one occasion over some of her policies on incarceration and, and, uh, and law and order in California when she was the, the Attorney General in California. Uh, so so the, the, the Democrat primaries were the moments that really stood out, I think, for me and for a lot of people, because after that you had COVID-19 and then everything went weird. And then, of course, you had this terrible business with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, and you had riots, you, you had police precincts being burnt down, um, and, and, and scenes of, of anguish on the streets uh, with African Americans and their many supporters, um, just absolutely astonished that, that the George Floyd murder could have taken place in, in such a way and so publicly. So those are, I guess that those are some of the things that stood out for me. I, I don't know if, uh, if that's uh, uh, enough. Uh, is there anything else you wanted me to uh, say about that? No, that, that, that's all fine. Um, so, so this is Joe Biden's third and only successful run for the presidency during his long political career, and he is very much a, a uh, I suppose, that establishment Democrat. What exactly got him through this time, though? Jill Biden. Um, he's very lucky because um, he, he, he has a lot of problems. He's gaff-prone. Everybody knows that he's prone to, to sort of put his foot in his mouth. He often just says the wrong thing. He did that a couple of times, but fortunately for him, at every stage, at these important moments when he was in public, he had his wife next to him, and she's been able to steer him um, away and, and sometimes prompt him. He has memory problems. He's, it's not just that he's very old. He's had some brain operations um, in the past, and also there's, there's a pretty strong likelihood that he's got uh, dementia. A lot of people have been criticised for suggesting that he might have dementia. They've said, no, he's just... He has a, had, a, had a speech impediment when he was younger, or what have you. But other people, including a, a lot of people who have had experience as dementia nurses, have said, "Look, no, this guy has got early on. He's got the onset signs of, of dementia, and I, I believe that. Um, you know, I've had a, had a few brushes with it myself, and with people in you know loved ones, and uh, and I, I get the feeling that he has got those signs. Of course, we all know that Ronald Reagan suffered from it." So the second term, the second Ronald Reagan term, uh, behind the scenes, uh, Reagan uh, was zoning out all the time and, and, and really it was other people who were basically running the country during that second Reagan term. So we're looking at that sort of thing too. Now that's the, obviously a bad recipe when you're going into the, into the heat of a campaign, especially when you're up against some really uh, hot uh, sort of populist type personalities, not just Trump, but a lot of people around Trump who are really full-on right-wing populists. So that was dangerous for Biden, uh, and he, I think he got away with it because he was able to keep out of public view a lot, and COVID was a fantastic excuse for Biden. Because of COVID, he, he had this brilliant excuse for not, not appearing very much. When he did appear, though, he always had Jill next to him, and, and I think she steered him through really well. Um, and it, 
was very difficult for Biden because um, his his side of the Democrat Party is really unpopular. Uh, ever since um, Barack Obama and obviously before him Bill Clinton, people have found that type of, of, of Democrat really a bit obnoxious because they're, they're just so two-faced, so dishonest, and they just look after Wall Street. They don't look after the ordinary battler. They don't look after the blue-collar worker, and yet they they claim all this support from the American trade unions and even the American trade unions that support them. Good unions like the nurses' union don't tend to support them. It's usually the corrupt unions that, that tend to support these right-wing Democrats. So they've got a huge um, uh, problem with, with credibility. They've got no street credibility at all. And um, they call it centrism, but it's actually a quite right-wing um, view that they have in that, that area of the Democrat Party. And we've seen it to some extent here in Australia. So we've had people like Joel Fitzgibbon trying to push the Australian Labor Party into that same pigeonhole. And it's really dangerous because it's so unpopular. It's just so incredibly unpopular. And it, it pushes um, economic policies that are really against the ordinary people. And you saw that with, um, with Biden uh, refusing to support the idea of a Medicare for all, a, a health, a universal health policy, which every other major country in the world has, has had for years. Uh, America is the only country that doesn't have a decent health policy. And uh, people like Bernie Sanders, to some extent also Elizabeth Warren, and others were supporting that. And yet Biden not only said that he was against it, but he said that if, if he was president, he would veto it. He would actually block it if Congress put it up, up for um, uh, for ratification uh, by the White House. As president, he would veto uh, Medicare for all. Uh, so he's, he's, he's a very unpopular figure with very unpopular policies. And uh, it's very, very lucky for him that COVID happened because with his mental issues and with his unpopular policies, uh, he was really actually setting himself up for a, for a lose there. So looking at the Republicans, what were some of the strengths and weaknesses of their campaign for re-election? Well, look, the, the biggest strength they had was Trump himself. What a big personality. Trump is the ultimate American. He's brash. He's, he's got a big mouth. He says big things. Uh, you know, and, and people love that. Uh, it, it's not what you want in a politician. It's very much what you want in a personality, a celebrity, a TV star. And that's what he is. He's not a politician. But an anti-political figure is, is very popular at a time when politics is really toxic. And so the biggest advantage they had was Trump himself and his really big personality. Um, the other thing that was a strength for their campaign, and it really pains me to say this, was the dog whistle racism. The constant dog whistle politics, the constant sort of disguised racism and rhetoric coming from Trump in particular was actually getting them votes. Mm. Uh, we talk about how important the African-American vote is in American politics, and it is, but even more important is the suburban white vote in American politics, and that was what they were trying to, to get with that dog whistle racism. Uh, there was also in Florida the, the, the idea of socialism coming to get you, so this is really ironic since Joe Biden is such a right-wing figure that they were able to, to try to portray him as somehow socialist which is ludicrous, but using that word was a great scare tactic in Florida because Florida's chock a 
of um, Hispanic voters, Hispanic American voters, whose heritage is either from Cuba or Venezuela. And as soon as they see anybody who's just a little bit left of centre, anybody left of Genghis Khan, basically, they will think that they're a communist and they will vote against them. Hmm. So in Florida, that was a, a big asset, and, and you saw that coming through in the Florida results. Florida was the, the, the state that the Democrats felt they really needed to win, and they didn't. Uh, now, the thing about the Trump type of Republican is that Trump Republicans are basically getting two main groups of voters. And this is what makes them so strong. They get two main groups of voters. They get cashed up conservatives, and they're a pretty big group in America. Remember, America is a very, very rich country, and there are a lot of pretty rich people in America. So that's a big group, the cashed up conservatives, the, the right wing, uh, upper middle class and, 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 and wealthy people in America. That's a big group. The second big group that they get is disaffected blue collar people, people in the outer suburbs, people in the country, uh, working class people who are just really fed up to the back teeth with Democrats. They are sick and tired of Democrats, always going on, banging on about like particular uh, specialist issues, I suppose you could call them. And they're important issues in their own right, but they're, they're, they're sort of like land rights for gay whales, you know. They're, they're these niche issues that appeal in the, in the urban sort of centres. But for, for blue-collar people in, in, in those outer areas, and this is something that Joel Fitzgibbon is actually right about, I hate to agree with Joel Fitzgibbon about anything, but he is right about that one little thing, and that is that working-class people are fed up to the back teeth with politicians who don't look after working-class people. It, it's, it's okay to, to campaign on those, those other social issues. I'm, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have done that, but the Democrats do that exclusively and at the expense of campaigning for working-class people. And so that's the second big group. Now, when, the, when they've done polls of the people who support Donald Trump and his Republicans, they've tended to merge the two together. So they come up with a result that makes it look like the people who support Trump Republicans are middle-class people. But that's because they're merging two distinct groups, one a very wealthy group and one a very poor group. Mm. So those were the strengths of the Republican campaign, and they were very real strengths. And what about the weaknesses of their campaign? Uh, a quarter of a million people dying from a, from a pandemic. You know, people sitting around the table seeing an empty chair. That's powerful. That's really powerful. Um, and also the fact that, that so many people are embarrassed by Trump. He's, he's great. People either love him or hate him, and a lot of people hate him. He's, he's, he is an embarrassment. He, he lies constantly. Something that the uh, Democrats certainly put a lot of emphasis on throughout the uh, the campaign. Um, some predicted a Democratic blue wave to sweep the nation on election night. Why didn't this occur? Uh, the, the people who were predicting that were probably looking at the pandemic and thinking, well, you know, with with so many people dying and everything, you know, it's such a disaster, such a massive disaster for the country that that would be enough to create. Um, 
estimating when they were looking at that was just how unpopular Democrats are, especially these sorts of Democrats. These people like Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, these people are really unpopular now because they're such hypocrites. They're always talking on it, talking about how they are in favour of the uh, middle class and working class Americans, but they're not. They work for Wall Street. Everybody knows they work for Wall Street. You only have to look at what happened um, uh, when you you had um, Bloomberg, Mike Bloomberg, suddenly parachuting himself into the primaries, um, doing spectacularly badly, but then leaving um, behind $100 million of free money for the right-wing Democrats, whilst at the same time completely bad-mouthing Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders was genuinely popular. Every time he had a rally before COVID, um, a lot more people turned up than they were expecting, and, and they were wildly enthusiastic. Uh, he had great policies. He had a Green New Deal policy to deal with climate change, uh, and that's the sort of thing that Joel Fitzgibbon might want to have a look at. If he's going to look after people in the Upper Hunter, he might want to think about what is going to happen when the coal industry does close down, because if you look at the Green New Deal ideas that Bernie Sanders was talking about, he had real plans for people in places like uh, West Virginia and Kentucky, where the coal mines are, are, are closing down. Uh, he was looking after working class people, and they, they paid him back. You know, uh, they, they were hugely in favour of Bernie Sanders, and when he was stabbed in the back by Obama and, and Clyburn and other people, establishment Democrats, that left a very bad taste for a lot of people. So that's uh, the way that they, that they stabbed Bernie in the back was one of the reasons why they didn't get the, the blue wave that they were hoping for. But basically nobody liked the Democrats because they just, uh, they're merely mouthed hypocrites. They just support the elite um, all the time, but they pretend not to. Uh, if, you know, so you might as well vote for a Republican who at least is honest about the fact that they support the elite, uh, mm. except for Trump, of course, who pretends not to and then, then turns around and does. But the Democrats did badly. They, 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 did, they didn't win the Senate. They were hoping to win the Senate. Although we don't know yet, there's a runoff in Georgia that's going to be really interesting. They, they didn't do at all well in the House. They will retain control of the House, but only by a handful of votes. And they lost a whole bunch of states, because remember in America, the elections are not just for the Congress and the President, they're also for a whole bunch of other positions in the state, and even locally. So people have huge ballot papers that they have to fill in, or, or computer screens that they have to touch. Hmm. So yeah, the there was no blue wave, and that was basically because these these very right-wing Democrats are detested by so many people. Hmm. So Trump still refuses to concede defeat. Do you think he holds any hope of preventing Biden from taking the presidency? Absolutely not. Uh, there's no. I don't, I don't really see any point even even discussing it at this point. Hmm. Uh, there there is no avenue. None. Zero. Nada. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a good, clear answer. Um, <laughs> uh, do you think, though, that Biden is capable of bringing together a nation that is clearly so deeply divided? Oh, no, absolutely not. No, Biden, Biden uh, no chance at all. Uh, I, 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 I hate to be an American right now. I'd hate to be an American right now. It's, it's not, I mean, COVID alone, you've got a terrible pandemic situation. We've had a few brushes with it here, but we've, we've been so lucky here. Um, you look at the UK, uh, dreadful. You look at the United States, dreadful. Uh, 
so they've got to deal with that. They've got to, got to somehow get on top of that, and that, that's just the biggest issue, obviously, right now. But then behind that issue is the other is the the biggest issue of them all, which is climate change. And people everywhere are starting to recognise that. But Biden's not going to do anything about it. He's going to he says he's going to sign up to Paris, but even Paris is a bit of a joke when you look at what's what's been happening and and the need we now face to deal with the climate emergency. So really, um, he's not going to do anything. He's completely dishonest. He's been just a very dishonest politician for the whole of his career, which is a very long one. Very flaky. Um, he's a person, I, I believe, of diminished capacity. Um, so he'll have to rely on others in the White House, in the West Wing, to, to guide him. So I think this is going to be worse than Obama in 2008-2009 when the global financial crisis happened and Obama... Um, basically sold out the, the, the mainstream population in favour of Wall Street. Uh, I could see pretty much exactly the same thing happening under Biden. So that's going to create an even bigger problem. Um, so at, at the moment, you, you've got elitists um, of one type or another, either Republican or Democrat, still clinging to power. Uh, against that, you've got populists of the, the Trump supporters. They're out now, but they're, they're going to be causing a few problems. The, that's the populism, which is a funny business because you start off with opposing elites, but then you end up, it ends up, it's a bait and switch because you end up opposing elites by giving those elites a big juicy tax cut. So I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, here's a bag of money. Mm. That's the, the trouble with that Trump right-wing populism is that it, it's a, a reaction against the elite but then it misidentifies the elites and then it switches the whole argument around so they end up um, kneecapping the government at, at, at the very point where it is meant to provide for ordinary people. So they can't have a healthcare system that works. They can't have all of the changes required for something like a Green New Deal. So to, to decarbonise the economy, they can't do that. They, they end up spending too much money on defence and you've only got to look at all the useless wars they're involved in. And to Trump's credit, he at least didn't get involved in too many wars. He did some very bad things. He, in Yemen, it was dreadful what he did in Yemen, and, uh, he, and murdering that Iranian general was a bad move. But apart from those things, he didn't really get too involved in major wars. Biden will, I suspect. Uh, but the, 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 the other kind of the politics that's bubbling away is socialism. And, and Bernie Sanders was embracing socialism and, and people were embracing that. People were actually quite happy to oppose elites and actually oppose those elites and say, yeah, we've had enough of this. We've, we've been handing out free tax cuts to Wall Street for, well, ever since Bill Clinton, really, and, and well, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was the best example of that. So it's been going on for decades, handing out freebies to Wall Street and getting nothing in return. Um, so... I think people have just had enough, and you only have to look at the violence that was uh, on evidence uh, during those Black Lives Matter protests after the George Floyd murder to see what Americans are capable of when they get really angry, and they are really angry. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I think because of, of the fact that Bernie Sanders didn't get the chance to, to get the landslide that I'm sure he would have got, and I've got no doubt that Bernie Sanders would have won by a landslide had he been the nominee, because that was that was sidelined by some very dirty tricks within the Democrat Party. I think that there's now a lot of uh, very.
see uh, anything but bad things happening under a Biden presidency. And, it, and I'm not saying it would have been better under Trump. I think it would have been just as bad, if not worse, under Trump. But uh, no, I think the outlook for America is dreadful, frankly, dreadful. Hmm. Is there a, a question, another question from, uh, from me? Where do you think the Republican Party is going to go from here now that Trump is no longer going to be uh, their, their president? Oh, that's, that's really hard to say. I mean, you've, you've still got the desire to hang on to all of that popular support from the, from the blue collar, from the working class. But that doesn't sit well with the, with the traditional Republicans who are, who are wealthy people. Uh, so I think probably at some point they'll they'll have to um, they'll have to just say you know we we're going back to our, our base we're going to be the party of um, small government and we're going to be the party of um, conservative values but we're not going to be the party of the extreme right yep. and um, that's difficult for them because that then puts them in the same box as the Democrats, because the Democrats have shifted so far to the right under, under Clinton and Obama that the Democrats are also occupying that space. Uh, so it creates virtually a one-party system in America, and uh, some people have been suggesting that America's been a one-party system for, for a while now because of that sort of right-wing convergence. People talk about the Overton window, which is the window of political possibility and everything on one side is too far to the right, everything on the other side is too far to the left. And the Overton window, they, they say, has been shifted so far to the right now that you've just got two parties that you can't distinguish from each other. Mm. So um, that would, would suggest that things are, are very difficult for the Republicans. It, it's very it's going to be very hard for the Republicans because they have to sort of shake off this um, kind of uh, blue-collar populist element which which uh, we've seen you know with proud boys and other kinds of white supremacists uh, giving the Republicans a really bad name yeah yeah I'm very curious myself to see where the uh, what direction the party takes going forward uh, Todd thank you so much for joining us today for our final politics in the podcast for for 2020 hopefully we'll hear from you again uh, next year oh, thanks Billy. yeah it's been a pleasure. Politics in a Podcast is supported by the University of Newcastle through the School of Humanities and Social Science. Music is provided by Anchor, a free online podcast creator. And I'm your host, Peter Hooker. It's been a pleasure having you, and we hope that you tune in next time for more Politics in a Podcast.